Welcome to the Partcast series, episode 52, part 1. High conflict separation in the context of child welfare services. Background and impact on children. The Partcast series brings evidence-informed child welfare practice to life by highlighting literature reviews from the Particle Archives. This podcast will review the literature related to the acrimonious separation between caregivers and impacts on the children are discussed. Introduction and Research Questions Families come into contact with child welfare services for a variety of reasons. As of 2013, the most common reason for investigation in Ontario was exposure to intimate partner violence, IPV, with 48% of substantiated child maltreatment investigations falling under this category. This is an increase of 14% from 2008. One of the main reasons for this increase is the growing number of cases that consist of a child custody or access dispute between parents. Custody disputes present a unique challenge to child welfare services. This particle will review the literature related to acrimony separation between caregivers and provide practice considerations for workers who encounter this issue in the context of child welfare services. The questions used to guide this research review include, how common is high conflict separation in families involved in child welfare? What factors are associated with families going through high conflict separation? What are some strategies used to work with families going through high-conflict separations? There are almost 2 million divorced individuals in Canada and another 841,315 who are separated. Of separated and divorced Canadians, roughly 1.2 million have a child who is under the age of 18. Most children reside with their mothers, about 70%, following separation or divorce. 15% reside primarily with their fathers, and 9% reside equally between parents' homes, and 6% reside somewhere else. Residency and visitation are most often guided by written agreements in 59% of cases, or verbal agreements in 32% of cases between parents. Written agreements are most frequently drafted by lawyers, judges, mediation, conciliation, or alternative dispute resolution, or prepared by the parents themselves. In general, judge-ordered agreements are a last resort for resolving issues when using a lawyer or other court alternatives has failed. Of those without a written agreement, conflict between parents is one of the most frequently cited reasons for a lack of agreement. It is difficult to assess the prevalence of high-conflict separations, but experts estimate that between 10 and 15% of couples will continue to engage in contentious and prolonged litigation and disputes, even after a divorce has been finalized. Divorce and separation in Canada. The divorce rate has decreased from a high of 364 per 100,000 in 1987 to 211 per 100,000 in 2008, the last year for which Statistics Canada calculated the divorce rate. This rate does not include the breakdown of common law couples, divorces that occurred in another country, or desertions. Overall, 40.7% of marriages in Canada end in divorce, though 33% of first marriages will end in divorce and 20% of divorces are repeat divorced for at least one of the partners. Legal Context In Canada, the Federal Divorce Act outlines that custody and access decisions should reflect the best interests of the child. 
best interests of the child are taken to mean maintaining maximum contact with both parents following separation and divorce. On the other hand, child welfare services are based on provincial legislation and identify the best interests of the child as separate from those from the parents, whereby it is recognized that certain parental behaviors can put children's well-being and safety at risk. While most provinces do not specifically include child custody and access disputes or exposure to intimate partner violence as part of the definition of a child in need of protection, they do include cases where there is a risk that the child will suffer emotional harm resulting from the actions or inactions of their caregivers. For example, the Ontario Eligibility Spectrum of 2016 specifically lists in Section 3.1c that the risk to the child is likely to be emotionally harmed resulting from the child's exposure to ongoing post-separation caregiver conflict as a reason for intervention. This is a much-needed guidance, especially as the number of referrals that include a custody dispute has grown in the last 10 years. The following sections will help workers to understand what high-conflict separation entails and how it can impact children's emotional well-being. High-conflict separation. Few parents separate without any conflict, and some families will remain in high-conflict situations for an extended period. High-conflict custody disputes refer to situations where parents cannot agree on custody, access, and or parenting decisions. In these situations, mediation and other court alternatives might not have worked. Although high-conflict separations make up a small number of all separations, they tend to take up more time and resources in family courts. Common reasons for high-conflict disputes include lack of enforcement of visitation agreements or child support payments, relocation of a parent and a child, termination or reduction of the access of one parent by another, non-custodial parents desiring increased access, or allegations of parental alienation. Parental alienation is a contentious issue and will be covered in the following section. Due to their inability to reach a long-term co-parenting solution, parents engaged in high-conflict separations may take up a disproportionate amount of community resources. Sayini and colleagues in 2013 estimated that 12% of child welfare investigations in Canada involved parents engaged in an ongoing custody and access dispute. These families tended to be re-referred to child welfare services more often than non-custody dispute cases, and children reported higher rates of emotional harm, and the allegations were more likely to be judged as malicious and unfounded, 13% compared to 4% of non-custody dispute cases. More recent findings indicate growing rates of malicious referrals in Canada. 25% of custody dispute cases and 12% of non-custody dispute cases overall. But allegations are more substantiated, 66%, in custody dispute cases compared to non-custody dispute cases, which is 27%. Parents engaged in custody disputes who are investigated by child welfare services are more likely to have drug abuse issues, mental health issues, and to be victims of domestic violence than parents without custody disputes. Increasingly, referrals are being made to child welfare services by professional groups, such as police, the courts, or schools. It is important to note that while the frequency of malicious allegations is higher than in non-custody dispute cases, the majority of allegations in custody disputes are made in good faith. Furthermore, mothers and fathers are equally likely to make good-faith allegations that are deemed unfounded, though in both cases these are the result of miscommunications, misunderstandings, and the stress of separation instead of actual abuse or neglect. Specifically, 
For sexual assault allegations, while most cases in Canada and the U.S. are, are deemed unfounded, just under half of referrals in custody dispute situations are substantiated or suspected. Therefore, workers should never assume that a referral in a custody dispute case is baseless. Furthermore, cases involving child custody disputes are more likely to have a female victim of domestic violence than cases without a custody dispute and there are more child-functioning issues identified than in non-custody disputes, 44% versus 41%. Research indicates that these cases require a full and complete investigation without the interference of inaccurate preconceptions. Factors that increase parents' risk of prolonged high conflict include mental illness or emotional instability, poor communication patterns, desire for retaliation and lack of forgiveness for the end of the relationship, financial imbalance between couples, and intimate partner violence. The stress of parental conflict also exasperates parental psychopathology, which impairs parents' ability to respond calmly and rationally to the separation and further increases parental conflict. Impact on children. Researchers propose that the effects of divorce on children's development and their relationships to their parents is minimal compared to the effects of the discord between parents in a high-conflict separation. Children who are exposed to high levels of parental conflict following separation and divorce can experience maladjustment to the change in family situation and are at risk for emotional harm from exposure to continued adversary behavior between the parents. Importantly, children's maladjustment, including anxiety, depression, and antisocial behavior, is often present before the divorce or separation actually occurs. Longitudinal analyses that track children over time have found that divorce is a process that can begin several years before the official separation is made. Children whose parents divorce later are more likely to exhibit symptoms of anxiety, depression, and antisocial behavior than children whose parents never separate. Unsurprisingly, the negative impacts are stronger for high-conflict separations than low-conflict separations. Children whose parents share custody or parenting report feeling happy with the arrangement and the ability to maintain relationships with both parents, particularly if they are allowed to provide input into the nature of the agreement. Children whose parents put the conflict behind them face few of the negative impacts of divorce, while children in high-conflict situations have the worst behavioral and emotional outcomes. Giving children a voice is particularly important in relocation disputes, the number of which are increasing as the world becomes more globalized. Interventions that incorporate legal services to children in the form of a children's lawyer and therapeutic counseling have shown promising results in decreasing the impact of high-conflict separations on children's well-being. There is also some preliminary evidence to suggest that including the child in mediation attempts with the parents can decrease the number of motions and hearings. Other factors that decrease the negative impact of children's mental health problems in high-conflict custody disputes include the quality of the parenting received and the amount of time spent with the high-quality parent. There is currently no research indicating a difference in child functioning between sole custody and joint custody in high-conflict families. As most judges and lawyers are uninformed about children's mental health, child development, attachment, and other factors that affect the best interests of the child, Judges presiding over high-conflict separations might request a custody evaluation. Custody evaluations are undertaken by any licensed mental health professional with experience in child custody disputes and are aimed at determining the state of the relationships between family members and the family's functioning to determine which custodial arrangements would be in the best interests of the child. 
The custody evaluation is based on multiple meetings with the family, child, extended family, and friends, and can be a source of information for child welfare workers if allegations of child abuse or neglect are made. The assessor is not there to counsel the family, only to conduct an assessment. However, the costs of an assessor fall to the parents, limiting this approach to higher income families. Child welfare workers might be called to work with child custody evaluators. Workers should check with their supervisors and agencies on which information they can share with the evaluators based on the court's orders and the confidentiality and disclosure agreements in place with the family. In very high-conflict situations where parents are unable to make any decisions together, a parenting coordinator might be necessary. This court-appointed mental health practitioner has extensive training in high-conflict clients and acts as a neutral third party and monitors and facilitates the decision-making process of disputing parents allowing decisions to be made in the best interests of the child. However, a parenting coordinator requires the parents to have the capacity to engage in the coordination process, which excludes parents with a mental health issue that is untreated, parents in substance abuse treatment, and parents with restraining orders. Furthermore, the cost of a parenting coordinator must again be covered by the parents, which limits the ability of low-income families to engage in this process. Potentially harmful parenting behaviors within high-conflict separations. Degrading comments made by one parent against the other in the presence of the child. Parent questioning children about the personal life of the other parent. Parents using children as a messenger. Interfering with access to the other parent. Interfering with communication to the other parent. Neglecting children's needs due to focus on conflict with the other parent. Asking the child to keep a secret from the other parent. And withholding medical, social, or academic information about the child from the other parent. The complicated case of parental alienation. Parental alienation occurs when one parent believes that the other is purposefully attempting to turn the children against the targeted parent. The traditional definition of alienation does not include the parent-child relationship difficulties that might be expected as a result of divorce or separation of the parents. Rather, it includes cases where the child's reasons for resisting or refusing contact with a parent are disproportionate to the level of resistance and are the result of actions and statements made by the favored parent. Justified rejection because of child abuse or neglect are not included in the definition of parental alienation. The difficulty is in determining which cases are justified estrangement and which are actual cases of parental alienation. To further complicate services for families experiencing high-conflict separation, several of the scenarios can occur at once. For instance, if a child refuses to visit a non-custodial parent, the parent might allege that the custodial parent is engaging in parental alienation. At the same time, the custodial parent might claim that the non-custodial parent is emotionally abusive and that the child is justified to refuse visitation. Responding to these complicated situations requires the courts and investigating child welfare workers to consider several factors, without a lot of guidance. At present, there is no tool to differentiate justified from unjustified alienation and no way to determine the level of harm resulting to children from parental alienation. Some pathologies are associated with parental alienation. Parents with narcissistic or borderline personality tendencies or diagnoses are more likely to engage in behavior designed to get revenge on their partner for the separation. This behavior can include attempting to manipulate the child by parental alienation of the other parent, or through manipulation of the courts and child welfare system through accusations of child maltreatment when none has taken place. 
Parents with narcissistic tendencies or diagnoses are unable to perceive any flaws in their own parenting or their own role in the dissolution of their relationship to the other parent, and instead they place the blame solely on their ex-partner. Their views are characterized by extremes. They are all good and the other parent is all bad. Practitioners might notice that these parents use inflammatory language to describe the undesirable behavior of others. For instance, referring to the parent's undesirable behavior as abusive when someone without narcissistic tendencies would describe the same behavior as rude, inconsiderate, or inflexible. Indicators of narcissistic tendencies include the belief that all actions of others are the result of wanting revenge and are unjustified, and that they bear no responsibility for negative events in the past, and a role reversal with the child with the parent seeking constant validation to the child to fulfill the parent's emotional needs. Childress, in 2016, suggested that because narcissistic parents do not recognize any authority as being higher than their own, they are more likely not to comply with visitation orders, requiring the other parent to return repeatedly to court seeking enforcement of visitation orders. Mental health practitioners have argued that problematic parenting produces an insecure attachment bond that more strongly motivates the child to form an attachment bond to the problematic parent. In the context of parental alienation, child welfare workers can consider whether the level of attachment between the child and the alienated parent is new or has existed for a while. In the case of actual parental alienation, the child and parent report consistently strong levels of attachment prior to the separation, and only after the separation occurred did the relationship quality decrease substantially as the child sought to establish a secure attachment to the manipulative parent. In cases of false claims of parental alienation, a lack of positive relationship with the alienated parent can be seen even prior to the separation, and parental claims of malicious interference by the favored parent can be viewed with more skepticism. One approach that has been suggested to treat parental alienation is called full custody with intensive reunification. This process requires full custody to be given to the alienated parent and that children are restricted from visiting the other parent until they have had a chance to reform a relationship with the alienated parent through intensive reunification therapy to mend the relationship between the parent and child. However, there is no research evidence that this approach is any more effective to responding to parental alienation than allowing the situation to resolve itself over time. Thinking Critically Case context. During your investigation or ongoing work with the family, have you considered all of the above? Do you need to gather more information about the family, their context, their history, in order to make an accurate plan and decision and move forward? Child, youth, and caregiver preferences. Do you need more information about the child, youth, and caregiver preferences to move forward? How well do you know the family's values, beliefs, and cultures? Do these areas correspond with what you expected of the family? How did their values, beliefs, and culture correspond with your plan or decision? In the written format of this podcast, the particle posted on partcanada.org, there is a DSM-5 definition of narcissistic personality disorder, which can be viewed by visiting www.partcanada.org. You have been listening to the podcast series, episode 52, part one, high conflict separation in the context of child welfare services. 
Background and Impact on Children. The podcast series is produced by Practice and Research Together, a Canadian membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system. For more information on today's episode or other episodes in the podcast series, please visit www.partcanada.org. <laughs>